Not looking for a show of hands, but how many of you, just thinking about it, have ever been possibly falsely accused of something that you didn't do? And if you were accused in that way, was it easier or harder for people to believe that you were innocent if you had acted that way in the past? Somebody says, hey, you stole something. Well, I didn't do it this time. That's the experience that Jacob finds himself in in the chapters that we're going to look at this morning. I know last week I had said we were going to try to cover it in, uh, in three sermons, but I think it's probably going to be four. Uh, just because I was looking at this chapter, and I think these two go together very well, leading up to his encounter with God in chapter 32. Just sort of broad overview of Jacob's life. Jacob has um, had a sort of a, a tension, a competition with his older brother Esau that was made worse by the fact that he tricked his brother, uh, manipulated him probably in the first case, into saying, yes, you can have the rights of the firstborn, you can have the inheritance sells his birthright uh, earlier, a few chapters back. And then he does actually lie to his father Isaac, who is blind, possibly failing in his other senses, and uh, doesn't recognize that it's Jacob who's come to receive the blessing instead of Esau, so he steals his brother's blessing. And so Jacob's life up to his departure from his family's home is characterized by lying and by stealing in various ways. He arrives as we saw recently, to his uncle Laban's house. His uncle says, what will I give you? Uh, you work for me? He says, I want to marry your daughter. Laban says, sure, work for me for seven years, and you can be married to her. Then on the night of the wedding, Laban manipulates the circumstances, deceives Jacob. Jacob, in the morning, discovers he has married not the younger daughter, whom he feels that he has loved, but rather her older sister. And then rather than being content... And moving forward from that point, he works another seven years for the younger daughter, Rachel. Now he has two wives. There's competition between them, the older, the younger. They're maidservants. And so now Jacob has had children through these four different women, Rachel, Leah, their two servants, uh, Bilhah, and um, also Zilpah. That was what we saw in chapter 30 to 31. And now we come here in the second half of chapter 30. And now Jacob and Laban have this further discussion with regard to, is Jacob going to keep working for Laban, or is he done? He can go home, he can take his family and his flocks and return to the land of Canaan. So we'll start in verse 25. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, I'm just going to highlight a few things for, for you all from this chapter. Verse 25, it came about when Rachel had born Joseph Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own place and my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, and let me depart, for you yourselves know, you yourself know my service which I have rendered you. Jacob says, I've worked the 14 years. I've done what I owe you. I've married your daughters. It's time for me to go home. Laban says, I'm not ready to let you go yet. Let me make you a different offer. Verse 27, If now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. This will come up later, this idea of divination or trying to tell the future in various ways. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob says, all right, do this for me. 
I will keep watching your flocks. You give me all of the odd-colored sheep and goats. The black sheep, the speckled and spotted goats, those will be my wages. That seems like a reasonable enough offer. Maybe that's a less common thing to occur. So Laban says, all right, that can be your wages. Work for me for the next however many years. And any of the flock that are the, the terms that you've named, those will be yours. Jacob interestingly says in verse 33, My honesty will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs found with me will be considered stolen. It's interesting that he would phrase it this way, if my, my honesty will answer for me, because he's not been especially honest up to this point. But we do, I think, see a change in him over the course of these chapters. Verse 35, So he removed the striped and spotted male goats. Who's the he? That's an important question. I think the he is Laban, based on what we see next. Laban removes the striped and spotted male goats, the speckled and spotted female goats, everyone with white in it, the black ones among the sheep, gave them into the care of his sons, and put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. All right? Reasonable enough thing for Jacob to say, here are my wages. Laban says, all right, see how far you get with getting those wages when all of the sheep that are likely to have the ones that you named, or all the goats that are likely to have the ones that you named, I'm going to take them away from you. So he's going to highlight this in the passage that we'll get to shortly that we read this morning for our scripture reading. The discussion from verses 37 to 43 is one of the more difficult passages in Genesis. What is Jacob doing? He peels bark off of sticks. There's mention of watering troughs. The sheep and the goats are having babies. What, what is the relationship between all of these things? First of all, there's probably some parallel between the apparently superstitious desire of Rachel for the mandrake roots in the previous chapter, this conflict between Rachel and Leah, hoping that it will make her more likely to conceive children, which she greatly desires, and Jacob's practice here with the white sticks. There's, there's word plays in this chapter in the Hebrew between the word white, because Laban's name means white, and the white roots of the plant in the previous chapter, the white sticks in this chapter, and all the things that Laban talks about in the next chapter. So there's that dynamic going on. There's two main possibilities of what's going on here that I think are legitimate. One is, Laban is doing something that appears to be a superstitious practice because Laban is superstitious, and he's trying to throw them throw him off of what he's actually doing. I think that that's a likely possibility, and that is the way that most of the translators have translated it, that he takes the sticks, he puts them by the watering troughs, and he's not actually accomplishing anything by that, but he's playing into Laban's superstitions. The others would say, well, maybe he's superstitious himself, but I don't think that fits with the development that we see of his faith in God. The other possibility is that he's doing something with the sticks without going into all the details of animal husbandry that is going to affect the breeding of the sheep and the goats in such a way that the net result is Laban's flocks decrease and Jacob's flocks increase. Either of those are legitimate possibilities, and for purposes of what we see here, it doesn't matter. 
people will get into, like commentators will get into big arguments about what this passage means. Either he's playing into Laban's superstitions or he's doing some practice of animal husbandry. The point is, regardless of which he's doing, he gets no sheep and goats that are the right color unless God intervenes. That's the thing that we ought to focus on from this passage. And for those of you who maybe keep sheep or, or goats that would be interested in some of the other possibilities, I'm happy to send you the article. That meant probably just a handful of you in the congregation. For purposes of what we're focusing on from this text, it is God blesses Jacob despite Laban's trickery. Was Jacob entirely innocent or honest in his approach to things? Verse 41, whenever the stronger of the flock were mating, Jacob would place the rods on the side of the flock in the gutters so they might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. There's perhaps an element of strategy here. I don't know that it rises to the level of deceit or sin, but we still see a little bit of an element of that in Jacob's character. But verse 43, the man became prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. This parallels God's blessing on Abraham, on Isaac, and now on Jacob. And that theme of blessing is something that we see all throughout the book of Genesis. God is blessing Jacob despite Laban's trickery. But I don't think that's the main point of the story because that's something that we see all throughout the book of Genesis, this idea of blessing. What's interesting, what's unique about this passage the conflict, the primary conflict, I think, comes into play in chapter 31, verse 1. Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that is our father's, and from what belonged to our father he has made all this wealth. Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. What's the real conflict in this larger passage? Is Jacob still a liar and a thief? That's the accusation that Laban's sons make. That's the accusation that Laban himself is going to make to Jacob's face later in the chapter. Was Jacob the same as he was before, or is God changing him to be something more than he was before? Verse 3, God says, It's time to go back to Canaan. Go to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Then we have this speech that Jacob gives in verses 4 down through verse 13, where he repeats God's words, but he adds in all these other details. And the first time I read this, where he says things like, the angel appeared to me and said, um, there, here's this vision of the sheep and the goats, and God is blessing him. And verse 13, I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, return to the land of your birth. Is he changing God's words? Is he adding to God's words? That was my impression when I first read this section. But... As I was reading through this and thinking about it and looking at what some of the other people were saying about this passage, it seems that Jacob is summarizing God's work in his life up to this point. He's not adding to God's words. He is serving as the narrator's commentary on God's work. Laban tricked me. God blessed me. God appeared to me and said, this is what's going to happen. God kept his word. Now God is sending me back to the land of Canaan. So the first obstacle that Jacob has to overcome heading back to the land of Canaan is this. How are Laban's daughters and their maidservants going to respond to uprooting and leaving their family? They've been here 
their whole lives plus another uh, the past 20 years? Are they going to be ready to go, or is that going to be a really hard thing, and they're going to stay here and take Laban's side in this? Look at their response in verses 14 through 16. Rachel and Leah said to him, Do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners, for he has sold us and has also entirely consumed our purchase price? Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. Jacob was probably a little bit fearful that his wives and children were going to object to going back to this foreign land that they were not familiar with. But in fact, they shared his perspective. Laban has deceived us. Laban has not done right by us. God has blessed you. We'll follow you where you're going. Which I think is a further sign of God's work because Jacob has not been the nicest of husbands, particularly to Leah, but in some ways to Rachel and to the others. And yet, by this point, they have seen that God's hand is on him despite his earlier sinful character. And so now they're ready to go back to the land. Jacob gathers everybody. Getting ready to go. Verse 19 is a strange thing of here of chapter 31. When Laban had gone to share his flock, Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's, and Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. So here's the tension. Accusation, you're a thief and a liar. Middle of chapter 31, it appears that both those things are true. And then comes the confrontation with Laban that was our scripture reading this morning. Jacob flees with all that he has, crosses the Euphrates River, set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it's told Laban on the third day Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen and pursued him seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. This is important because this is the same thing that had happened when the servant came to find a wife for Isaac and took Laban's sister Rebekah back to Canaan with him why was, there, why was it that they were willing to let her go? God had appeared to them in a dream and said, Do not speak to him good or bad. In other words, do what he's saying. This is my purpose. Honor it. Now Laban catches up with Jacob. The tension is building. Is he going to drag them all back to his homeland? Or are they going to continue on their journey? He confronts Jacob in verse 26. What have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, with timbrel and with lyre, and did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Now you have indeed gone away because you long greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob replied to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. Does this sound familiar? This was Isaac's rationalization for lying about his wife and Abram's excuse for lying about his. And now for the third time, technically the fourth, we see this come up in the book of Genesis, that fear drives Jacob's departure in the middle of the night, so to speak. Verse 32, The one with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. This anticipates a similar ploy by Joseph later in the book 
with his brothers where there's an object hidden among their belongings and they say the one who that you find it with will die he says no he'll be my servant that will become important later in the book of Genesis Laban goes into Jacob's tent Leah's tent the tent of the two maids did not find them goes to Rachel's tent does not find them there Rachel had taken the household idols and put them on the camel's saddle and sat on them Laban felt all through the tent but did not find them she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry. I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. Then we come to the passage that we already read this morning. What is it that we see in this passage? Jacob deceived Laban, as in was not entirely forthright with him because he departed suddenly without saying goodbye. He gives his reason for it, the same reason that Isaac and Abraham had had I'm afraid that you're going to take my wife away from me. My wife's away from me, right? Exact same excuse that Abraham and Isaac had done. Was it the right thing for him to do? No, he should have trusted that God would work in that circumstance anyway. But it's also interesting that he repeats the same pattern we've seen earlier in the book. But who's the one who's actually doing the stealing and the lying? It's Rachel, the daughter of that Laban has loved, the one that he worked 14 years to obtain, the one that he has neglected his other wife for, she's the one that's actually doing the stealing and the lying. Laban's own daughter is the one who's stealing and lying toward him. Not Jacob. And then we have Jacob's defense. I worked for you for 20 years. So far from stealing, if a wild animal killed one of your sheep, I replaced it with one of mine. I ate my own sheep for food, not yours. This accusation that you're bringing against me doesn't have any basis. And at one level, we're like, yeah, you're the boy who cried wolf. You've lied, you've cheated, you've stolen. This is how you've lived up to at some point in the last 20 years. So why should we believe you? And yet, the reason that we should believe Jacob at this point is not because of anything amazing about Jacob, but because of the work that God has been doing in him. Laban continues to assert his right in verse 43. All of this is mine. Jacob says, it was, but God's given it to me. And the thing that made the difference wasn't you, it was God. And notice this important idea of judgment. Verse 42. If God had not been for me, you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. What was the judgment last night? Verse 24. Don't speak to Jacob, either good or bad. And then we see again in verse 53. The God of Abraham, of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. How do we tie all these ideas together? Because this seems like something long ago. What do we care about which sheep Jacob got? What do we care about whether he left in the night or in the morning and said the proper goodbyes? Uh, if you just got done with Thanksgiving, you might have had this thing where you're going around saying goodbye to everybody. If you just said, all right, we're going to skip all that. We're just going to leave right before everybody's going to bed or right after everybody else has gone to bed. That's not really the main point here, though, right? The main point is this. Jacob is falsely accused. You're still a thief and a liar. 
Jacob has this momentary lapse when he seemingly gets ready to deceive Laban by fleeing in the night. And when his wife, unbeknownst to him, actually steals Laban's household idols, possibly as some way to get back at her father for the way that she's been treated, possibly as some uh, thing about having control of the inheritance, even though that makes no sense. She was leaving the land. She wasn't going to get anything more from Laban. Probably it's best to understand it as some sort of revenge on her part. False accusations. Partial return to an old way of life. These are things that we can relate to, right? If we have sinned in the past and there are still moments when we sin in the present and someone brings an accusation against us, there's a sense in which it sticks a little bit because there's some basis for it. But who's the one who makes the final assessment of who's right in any given situation? It's God. And that's what this passage is saying. Jacob... It's clear that you were a thief and a liar. But what Laban's saying against you is being exaggerated and distorted and is not true. It's true that you could have handled your departure better, but it wasn't wrong for you to leave. In fact, God told you to do so. If you hadn't left, that would have been wrong. And what was God's assessment of the whole situation? God's evaluation, God's judgment was, Jacob belongs to me. He's not perfect. He's doing what I've called him to do, and I'm changing him to be the sort of person that he ought to be. So what does that have to do with our lives? We might think that we're good people. We want to believe that we're good people, right? We feel better about ourselves when we think I'm a good person than when we think I'm not a good person. The reality is, the sin may vary, but we're all like Jacob. You say, well, I don't steal. But do you lie? Well, I don't lie. Do you do all the things God requires you to do with loving your neighbors, yourself, and Him above everything else in your life? Not one of us meets God's standard when it comes to that. We all start at the same spot Jacob started. We're sinners. What changes us from that point? The only thing, rather the only person who can help us to get from that point to God saying, I judge and I'm on their side in this case, is the work that Jesus has done in our place. I cannot change myself by turning over a new leaf, being a better person, trying harder. I cannot deal with my sin and get rid of it because like Jacob experienced, it keeps cropping up and I can't deal with it on my own. But I can say, I'm a sinner, and I acknowledge that before you, God, and I cannot fix that on my own. But just like they were looking forward to the one who had come and deliver them from their sin, the promise made way back in Genesis 3, we now look back to the one who has come, who is Jesus, who has paid for sins like stealing and lying and all of the other things that we see Jacob doing. And we have to put our hope and our trust entirely in Him. Because if I keep trying to deal with my sin by doing good things, like giving money to the poor and praying and going to church and doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, 
It doesn't undo all the sin that I've done. But Jesus can and has dealt with sin for anyone who will say, I'm done with my sin and I'm turning to follow God. And then our experience parallels that of Jacob, right? We were this all the time. We still struggle with sin from time to time. But God has judged and said, that person, yes, that's how they were, that's how they are now, but they belong to me, and I am working in their lives, and I am changing them and transforming them. And so that's where it starts. Have you believed in Jesus, or are you still just like Jacob, scheming and plotting and trying to make life work on your own? That's where it has to start. Are you in this spot? Mostly I'm doing what I ought to do. He is being honest about the losses of the flocks and re uh, restoring to Laban, even though Laban probably should have just accepted those losses for himself. He is sacrificing of his own things to make sure that he is doing right by Laban. He has this moment of potential deceit when he's fleeing away, and we too, as those who follow Jesus, have moments when we're not perfectly following God. But we're looking forward to this, God's day of judgment. And when that day of judgment comes, how is God going to rule in your case? And how God is going to rule in your case is not based on, have I loved my family? Have I honored my country? Have I done right by my work? First and foremost, God is going to rule in your case based on your relationship to Jesus. Have you believed in Jesus? Is that transforming your life? Because if that hasn't taken place, you can do everything right by human expectations, and God will shut the door of heaven in your face. Because the only way to God is through Jesus. If you have trusted in Jesus, but you say, I'm experiencing a circumstance like Jacob, where I've been falsely accused. Maybe because of something I've done in my past, maybe not. How do you respond? You have basically two responses. One is, I'm going to sort this out on my own and prove my own innocence and, and, and get them to change their opinion of me. Or, I'm going to faithfully continue to serve God and recognize that God is the one who makes an assessment. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, right? The Corinthians said, you know what? We're not sure if we like you, Paul. We're not sure if you're all that great of a speaker. We're not sure if we should keep listening to you. What does Paul say? Paul says, God's the one who has to judge about that. Here's what I've done before you. But I'm not ultimately going to persuade you of my own character because I know my own character. I persecuted the churches of God, and you know that, and I know that. So it's not like we can sort of sweep that under the rug. You know what sort of person I have been. You also know what sort of person I was when I was with you. But even if you don't have a right relationship with me, like I would hope that you would, God knows my heart. God's going to evaluate what I've done. So, the main point of this passage 
people will make accusations. Sometimes they're true, sometimes they're false. If they're false, to some extent we have to leave that to God. If they're true, we need to repent and be moving further away from the point at which they're true, recognizing we can't always undo all of the hurt and the frustration and the distrust that we have created by our past actions. Are we rightly related to God through Jesus? Are we putting off sin as it crops up even in the course of following Jesus? And are we looking forward to this day when even if all throughout our lives people misjudge us and make false accusations or don't understand where we're coming from, whose evaluation really matters? It's God's evaluation. Is that the one we're looking forward to? Is that the one that we're ready for? Because even if Jacob cleaned up his act, if he was not the one who had a right relationship with God, being blessed by God, none of that would matter. Esau tried, right? He cast off God. He rejected his birthright. He wanted nothing to do with the responsibility God had given to him. Later on, he's like, I want that to some degree from what we see in the book of Hebrews. And yet, he didn't really want to follow God. He wasn't really as concerned about God's judgment. He was concerned about the loss of what it was that he thought he would have gotten. God wants us to have a relationship with him regardless of the benefits that we get from it. God wants us to be sure that we are rightly evaluated by Him. And that's, I think, what this passage is trying to get across to us. So, like I started earlier this morning, if someone makes a false accusation against you, what are you going to do about it? Ask yourself, if I know and follow Jesus, because otherwise those accusations we feel are false are probably true. If you have begun to follow Jesus, see if there's something that you need to deal with. But if you are innocent in it, God's the one who is a faithful creator who will judge what is right and wrong. And live in such a way that when you stand before God in that final judgment, your hope does not rest in your goodness and your worth and all of those sorts of things. It rests in God and what He has done for you and the change that He has produced in your life. Think back to Romans 9. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, before they were yet born and had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob. What does that tell us about these things? Jacob didn't deserve God's favor. Neither do you and I. But if God has begun a work in us, He will see it through and he will change us even as he is changing Jacob in the course of this, these chapters that we've been looking at. And so I hope that's true in your life. The same sort of change that we've begun to see in Jacob's life from being a sinner to being one who's following God, from being a trickster to one who is honest most of the time, most importantly, one who is judged by God as being the one that belongs to him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to know that we are rightly related to you this morning. That's the starting point. Not can we clear our own names, not can we undo every uh, lie that's brought up against us. 
if we are following you, then that's the job that Jesus has taken upon himself. When Satan accuses, Jesus answers, but I have paid for it with my blood. Lord, may we be confident that we are in that place, that we have that defense of Jesus against the accusations of Satan and false accusations of those around us. To have the confidence that the Thessalonians did, that God had judged them worthy of His kingdom, not ultimately because of their goodness, but because of the faith that He had worked in them that was shown by their response to trials and their perseverance in following You. Lord, in the same way that Jacob expressed that you judge between one and another, may we be on the right side of your judgment, acceptable to you as your people because of the work that you have done and are doing in us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.